<laughs> I've been waiting a long time for this. All talk, no shock. From the Emerald City of Seattle, it's the Mike Cyber Radio Podcast. Your home for pop culture, Transformers, independent artists, interviews, Transformers, and stuff and things. Also sometimes Transformers. And now, here he is, the cream that always rises to the top, Mike Seibert. Hey, welcome back to Mike Seibert Radio. I am your host, and today, we're coming of mage! Too mage, too furious um, uh, to talk about the recently completed Coming of Mage saga, which includes the novel Coming of Mage and its sequel, A War for the Mages. Please welcome to Mike Cybert Radio, the one, the only, Pizza Toss and Mike, Michael Motorcycle, Michael Andrews. Welcome to Mike Cybert Radio. Hey, thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Um, and also joining us is a is a special guest. If we were doing uh, WWE wrestling, it would be outside in- interference. Oh, my God, King, he's got a folding chair. He's coming <laughs> off of the top turnbuckle. My God, he's dead. I, I don't know. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the cover artist, the, the graphic designer of the Coming of Mage saga, also the one and only Aaron Thweet from Autopod Deception. Cast is hanging out with us as well. How you doing, my friend? Uh, thank you. I'm doing well. Although on most days I feel more like that YouTube viral video of uh, a bunch of people, like the entire audience, throwing the chairs into the uh, into the ring, and I'm underneath a stack of about 400 folding chairs. Throwing folding chairs on top. I love yeah. it. I love My enthusiastic it. cover artist, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say, we, we've been talking for like an hour prior to this, and it's just like, where did all that energy go? <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert, I'm quite the diva about my cover art. So he's, yeah, he's been through hell for the last couple months. So a couple things, just kind of like some uh, kind of housekeeping foundation building. This is a podcast we've been thinking about doing for the last several years, probably dating back to when we all met IRL back at uh, TFCon in Chicago, I think in, in 2018. And now we're here, now that the uh, second book, A War for the Mages, is out, and we thought it would be a really good time to kind of chat about the books, but more than that, kind of talk about the journey that that Michael Andrews colon author has has been on and then we'll kind of wrap in uh Aaron's uh sensibilities with the with the new cover project because again you, you can't see it it's an audio podcast but the the cover images huh. for both books are just just incredible I, I really like and I've been spending the last several weeks of podcasts whether it's been on my own show or other folks' show saying like trying to describe the vibe and aesthetic has been kind of like a a challenge for me. So I thought, you know, it'd be cool since we're all here, we kind of talk about um, kind of b- talk about that, go in a little bit of a deeper dive. So Aaron's going to kind of pop in and out as, uh, as, as the discussion goes, as well as talking about the cover art. But I guess every saga has a beginning <laughs> and every podcast is somebody's first podcast probably has no idea what the hell a TF con is, has no idea what the hell a APDC is. 
definitely um, that one. Who who is Michael Andrews colon author? <laughs> oh boy, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean let me, just let me lay down on the couch here. Let's take you back to second grade. Um, no, <laughs> no, I guess yeah, I'm a I'm a author slash Transformers fan. I think that's how we all met. But um, I've been I've been writing since I was a little little kid. I went to school for creative writing, um, even when. Everyone told me that was a terrible choice of major. Uh, I stuck to it, and uh, and yeah, now I've I've I'm in a place where I can um, you know spend a lot of my free time writing, and uh, the self publishing world is out there so that I can get I can get myself out there more often. Awesome, and I do want to spend some time talking about the self publishing world because you've um, you've had some successes but you've also had a fair share of struggle as well and i know more than a couple folks that are kind of struggling with that self-publishing space and i i know you have some yeah. insight that that you get i mean some cautionary tales and as well as um uh some successes you had so we'll we'll kind of unpack that um a little later but i guess for starters what um I, I I don't know if I want to start with the lightning bolt moment that that kind of like inspired you to bring the story of coming of mage to life, or if we just kind of want to start with, hey, uh, what what is what is this coming of mage, and why didn't we call the sequel <laughs> to Mage Too Furious? But no, I mean, so yeah, no, so yeah, so kind of kind of tell folks kind of about yeah. uh, about Quinn and and his friends and kind of what you know, kind of kind of what the what the vibe and feel of coming of mage is and then we'll we'll kind of unpack sure, more as sure. we go yeah uh the the first time i wrote uh the very first version of coming of mage was a was a short novel um i wrote that about probably about 2010 and it was uh, a self-published thing uh but it was a lot shorter uh the story was a lot different i guess I, it was sort of inspired by at the time i was living in the north shore of minnesota in grand Marais, and working at a ski resort so it's a little bit uh, autobiographical in nature, but but the type of writing style I do, I just can't stick to any certain formula. So I started jotting down notes about like what my life was like there, but it quickly became like, I want this set in the 80s because I love the 80s and I love the Brat Pack and I love 80s movies about the summer and, and, and jobs and everything like that. And I also want magic in there because <laughs> I like wizards and I like adventure and I like swords. Um, and I started forming this weird, weird world of, of you know, co the coming of mage where it's it's very subtle. It's set in a very realistic world that we all know, but uh, there's magic in it. And um, you kind of see that now in the movie uh, Disney's Onward, uh, that Pixar oh, movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, where, yeah. Where, where it like, takes a modern sensibility, but yeah. is kind of in the backdrop of a world where magic very much exists. I, It's funny. I Totally. You, me you mentioned that now. I saw that trailer for Onward. I'm like, isn't this just kind of coming of mage? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it definitely is. And in fact, they were using the term coming of mage like in a lot of their like pull quotes and stuff for the movie. Oh, like, my God. A coming right. of mage I tale. I forgot I like, about that. <laughs> screw off awesome. but <laughs> but headline uh, uh, I'll, I'll be author i'll be taking the engine later <laughs> yeah yeah so um but it is sort of that world. i at the time you know that 
that film wasn't out and uh, Harry Potter was very big. But the thing of Harry Potter and a lot of other modern magic books, uh, young adult books is like, is like this secret world of magic that's hidden behind the scenes from regular humans. And I didn't want that world. I wanted the world of like, Magic's always been there. Some people have it. Some people don't. And in a very realistic sense, the people that don't have magic don't care a ton about it. And and they get a little uh, scared of it, threatened by it, uh, defensive about it. And mostly, you know, that I think that's how magic would be in a world in a modern world like today. Uh, you would just have these people that were just like, well, I can't do it. So forget about it. Mm-hmm. I don't care. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the world that, the, that it's set in. It's this, it's this alternate 1980s mm-hmm. um, where a young mage, a young wizard named Quinn works at a off season ski resort. He's in love with a different type of magic user, which is an alchemist. So there's three classes of magic user in my book and that's alchemist mage and magus and they each have their kind of different set of abilities so he's he's sort of getting out of his zone a little bit going after this alchemist it is a it is a coming of age coming of mage story yeah i was gonna say we're we'll probably get into the pun game uh a little <laughs> later because uh you oh, know, that's all these two books are mike uh, exactly I, I, I was gonna say I, I didn't realize how much until i kind of started getting into it i'm like oh my god all these joke memes we've been slinging across on twitter it's all in the book that 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 sensibility <laughs> kind of yep. kind of cracks me up but so who's Who's the audience for the coming of mage saga? Is it, is it a YA type of thing? Who, who is this for? Yeah, I think so. You know, I don't know if this is true for other authors, but when I wrote this book, I didn't think of it like a young adult book. Uh, It was someone who was, I was trying to write a book that was like a newly minted college kid kind of breaking out on his own. And uh, that, that story just kind of um, gravitates toward me. I just like that story a lot. I like it in movies. I like it in the things that I'm ingesting, but I just wanted to do some play off of that. And, and along the way, when I got my first, my first publishing deal for it, they said, Hell, what a wonderful young adult book you've written. And I was like, okay, I guess I wrote a young adult book. So (laughs) there we are. So yes, I guess that's a long winded way to say I do consider it a young adult book. It's technically a new adult book um, because the age of the main character is um, like a college freshman. So I think YA is considered, they kind of go by the, the age of the protagonist, right? So young adult would be if your character is like a middle schooler, high schooler. Okay. Um, so this is, yeah, technically new adult, I guess you'd call that. Got it. And, and I've interviewed other creators before that, like they've done like a graphic novel and sent it in and the publisher, you know, marketed it as a YA book. And yeah. I, and it's like, well, I Yes, it is because I you crystallized it. It's kind of the age of the protagonist. So right. yeah, that's that, that's interesting because like I don't know. I I feel that things like young adult or YA are kind of a misnomer for what the content of the thing is. Like for example, uh, I I think something like all ages kind of gets thrown in that as well. It's like yes. all ages doesn't necessarily mean, you know, specifically for children. Like, you know, yeah. all of our favorite Pixar movies are all ages entertainment in that it appeals totally. to all ages. I, I think sometimes it's an unfair comparison 
Um, but then other times it, it also kind of gives you a, a sense of kind of what, what you're in for. Am I, am I losing my mind here? Am I onto something? No, no, that's absolutely true. And I think, I don't think we really live in a world anymore where you have to, um, sort of break it out, uh, by that sort of demographic. Everyone's just reading what they like. And we have so many people that grew up reading Harry Potter, for example, that they just want to stick with young adult books. I read a ton of young adult books and luckily I write them so I can pretend it's for research, but really I just prefer those stories. They're more interesting. They're more, they're more escapism. There's more freedom to do a lot, a lot more like creative, big ideas that you can't always get away with when you're writing like a serious lawyer novel or a serious, you know, crime thriller. Uh, You have a little more freedom when you're, when you're writing young, quote unquote, young adult. Yeah, yeah. Michael, uh, would you, I mean, would you tell me, would you say, this is Aaron speaking. I feel like I'm in a, uh, Hello, a Aaron. meeting Thank now. Hey, this, hey, oh, show, oh Aaron. my God, it's Aaron off the top. <laughs> outside interference, outside interference. Where's the referee? Where I just, just want to add too, I'd like to break in that, uh, you know, Mike did not tell us he was doing that wrestling stuff at all. This all just came off the cuff and we're pretty blown away. Uh, uh, big uh, wrestling uh, fan here, apparently. <laughs> I, I guess what I would say, I feel like the the genre of young adult or new adult or whatever you want to call it, basically books marketed to people, we'll say under 20, um, sure. has at least, it feels like it's grown a lot in terms of like the kind of subject matter it'll top. I, I, I go to um, Hunger Games series or Maze Runner. I feel, I feel like all the all yeah. blockbuster movies nowadays, like mainstream blockbuster movies are kind of... Uh, hitting in that job i mean you could even go to marvel comics for that matter and, and yeah the mcu and i i don't know if, if it's a stigmatized from an author standpoint but i i feel like the world is aligned to that style of story or subject matter and the, the elements of fantasy being completely acceptable Right. Well, and you, that's why you see a lot of, uh, like you were saying, a lot of movies, uh, a lot of YA books get turned into movies. And that's sort of what's driving Hollywood right now, because because they are the that bigger idea. They lend themselves to that big, booming medium that is going to the theater. So uh, I think I think, yeah, you absolutely nailed it. It makes a bigger story. It makes something it, it makes a spectacle uh, on paper that you can translate well to film. And so, you know, generally in, in these types of interview stories, I'm usually very chronologically laterally minded, not going to do that this time. We're going to kind of bounce across in time a little bit. And I kind of want to take us to a time back in, uh, say like 2018. So it's like, we're, we're all doing podcasting and we, we encounter this, uh, this cool fan of our podcast, this Michael Andrews dude, this, this pizza tossing (laughs) Mike, this Michael motorcycle, Michael, Michael motorcycle. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of like we got to know you as being a fan of our stuff and it was later like a little bit later where it's like oh here here's a copy of my book you know i'd I'd love it if you would check it out would uh would love to get your take on it and i remember even at the time it's like yeah that sounds great and i would love to have you on the podcast and and talk about it but that time i i would say is kind of like a i i don't know if it's fair to say a transitional time of the coming of mage saga but basically like you had your book out there it mm-hmm. as we learned later it had been out there for quite some time yeah maybe it was out of had, print actually yeah by the time you got it 
Exactly. So what what I guess I would I would like to talk about is kind of take us through maybe like some of the sequence of events and your motivations, one for getting a sequel out there. And then from there, going back and revisiting the original coming of mage. And then we'll kind of tie it all together with Aaron, where we kind of talk about the cover dressing project and, and kind of how, how that goes. But let, let's, let's kind of start from where yeah. you met us kind of, kind of going forward and, and how we get to a war for the mages. Right. Well, and that's interesting because uh, I think, I think you might probably took it more as like a, a, you know, an influencer and me trying to get my name out there a little bit. But, but really what I was doing was, uh, you know, you guys give me so much free content all the time. And I was just excited to meet you both, uh, both shows that I just was like, I, I, I wish I had something to give them at the time. I wasn't doing my own podcast. I didn't really have anything to share with you. And I guess that was a form uh, that I thought I could say, here's something I made that you can also see. So uh, yeah. And, and from there, it, it had been out of print for quite a long time. It, it did sort of spark the the first musings of like a sequel, um, just having someone else engage with that world and, and, you know, sort of offline, you, you know, you guys were sending me texts when you finished the book and telling me you liked these parts. And that was just really exciting. That was really uh, uh, inspiring to get me going again, but to pedal back a little bit further before that I published it myself uh, as a, as a ebook uh, novel, short novel. And then about a year after that or so I got, a publishing deal. And they said, you know, you have to, you have to take down your copy of it and lengthen it up, make it a longer, longer form book. And then we're going to republish it under our branding and it'll be in stores and all this stuff. So I obviously did that. I was like, that's great. I, I pulled everything on my own. And, and one of the good things that going to be honest, not a ton of great things came out of that, but one of the good things that came out of that was it allowed me to explore the story more um, in just looking for what um, I lovingly call filler and trying to make the book longer, I was able to explore some of the bigger themes that were that were there in my head alone. Um, but now I could actually kind of fill that in a little bit better. It actually uh, it actually doubled in length, uh, over doubled in length when I when I published it as or when they published it as a novel. And now the new edition that I put out with Aaron's beautiful cover uh, is is even longer than that. So. It's. I didn't change the story too much. If you've read one of the other editions, but I did want to go through and and I did have an opportunity to uh, make it a little longer and kind of explore even more themes that I I didn't get to at the time. And it kind of ties back to what you're saying about who's it for? Is it a young adult book? When they told me, hey, we're going to market it as a young adult book, that went into my thought process when I was lengthening the story. But really, now I have the freedom to go back and be like, you know, some of those things that were sort of tropey of young adult books, I don't have to, I don't have to be so precious about those. I can, it's, it's a story for anyone. That was kind of the cool thing about this new experience. And so since, um, since you had already, already kind of mentioned it, I was going to save this for later in the conversation, but I don't want to necessarily lose the momentum kind of talk about some of your adventures and misadventures in the in the self-publishing world um because yeah. like there there's there's some things that kind of went real wrong yeah yeah well i think i think one of the things and this was a huge red flag was that the publishing company that reached out to me th- they were essentially creating a middleman in the self-publishing process they were sort of taking it and they you know they made promises like we'll we'll market it for you you'll be in every bookstore we will just be taking our cut 
And I was like, cool, yep, that seems pretty standard. Um, but it wasn't. They didn't, they didn't really fight to have my book in stores anywhere. They didn't really make that push. There, there seemed to be no effort for them to get that book in stores. So that, that vision I had of like walking into any Barnes and Noble and seeing my name in print and the spotlight shining down on coming of mage on the shelves just didn't happen. And, uh, uh, they, they did a couple versions where they got my name wrong on the cover. They got my name wrong inside the book. Um, I found out a long time later, they skipped the ch- in the chapter numbering. They, they jumped ahead one chapter. So just little stuff like that where they, uh, you know, I was kind of like beholden to their mistakes. And that's got to be so frustrating. I mean, what, one of the things that, so I, I, I've got a couple friends that are authors as well and mm-hmm. are shopping around novels and are looking to uh, get published or self-publish. And I'm not familiar with all of the different type of models, but one of the the ones I've heard about from, from a friend of mine is what, what amounts to basically like a pay for play type of thing. It's like, if you pay us, we will publish your novel and kind of some of the things that you were saying, you know, put it out into, into the stores. And what I've heard from other folks is that basically like, if you get a deal like that, run, run the other direction. Yeah, totally. Um, And actually on the back cover of coming of mage i have a blurb from one of my favorite authors uh mm-hmm. who's matt forbeck he wrote vegas nights and a host of other amazing fantasy-esque novels check him out please matt forbeck he's awesome but when he he read my book and he gave me a great blurb for it um and then he reached out to me afterwards and said you know hey i th- i think there's some red flags with this uh book deal about to go down and um I think you should be really wary of it. And at the time I was, I was very young and naive. And I was like, this is just how I need to get my foot in the door. This is how it works. Uh, you know, you don't know kind of a thing. And yeah, he was right about everything. I mean, it was, it was being, being taken advantage of in a lot of ways, but it did, it did teach me a lot. It learned me a lot of lessons and it kind of got me back into the self-publishing idea. Mm-hmm. And, and Mike, I think some of the the models you're talking about. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's the more traditional way of getting your book out there, which is you, you, once you finish the novel, you start querying it to agents. You want to get an agent first and then they can shop you around to publishers. And along with that, what you were saying is, yeah, you should, an agent will never take a, a cut of anything up front. Uh, it will always come of sales afterwards. So that's something uh, aspiring authors can look out for. But yeah, uh, so that model is out there. Um, but as I'm not going to, I think, I don't know if this is sad to say, I'm never going to be a career uh, author. I think it's always going to be something that's going to be a little uh, in my free time sort of a thing. But that has freed me up in a lot of ways to like write the things that I want and the self-publishing uh, world. You know, Amazon takes a lot of heat, but their but their system for uh, authors is is really great, actually. Yeah, and and I wanted to spend some time talking about that because that that one ties into the publishing of the sequel and then you know kind of making the the coming of mage saga complete with the new edition but it's one of the things i i guess i kind of want to impart to folks that are listening is i mean obviously this what you're listening to is an independent podcast and we live in that era of independent content where it's you know it's podcasters it's youtubers and for some reason you guys can kind of riff on this as well. It's like, it it seems like that same 
a feeling or or sentiment towards say like podcasters and YouTubers doesn't extend to authors and maybe even musicians as well. I, I don't know if I'm crossing too many streams here, but but like you know the, the idea of an independent hobbyist author seems absurd to some or like a a hobbyist independent musician seems weird like you you, wait you want me to pay for your music music is free what are you talking about right Um, right. whereas like you know this podcast you're listening to is free you know that 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 (laughs) kind of thing but but it's i I don't know it's it's the the sphere of independent art has some weird nuances that i'm not sure if i can completely unpack but i thought i would kind of kick that over to the pair of independent artists that that i kind of have with here and all of this kind of springs for some of like my recent philosophy of like you know people die of exposure pay artists for their art that 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 kind of i i guess to kind of explain my my headspace a little bit but yeah uh maybe the the three of us can kind of riff and talk for for a hot minute about kind of that that idea of the independent artist yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll I'll throw it over to Aaron in a second, but my two cents on it. I think the era of like the starving artist is is over. You know, that's sort of like dying for your art or like writing it on a napkin on a street corner while you busk is kind of gone. I think it's definitely a, a more effective model to say, hey, this is our day job, but here's also this important stuff we want to get out there so so we can live and and uh, you won't be seeing this now, but behind me is a great Transformers collection bought and paid for by a real, uh, you know, day job writing career. But in my in my free time, yeah, now I have the I have the luxury of putting out my own work and my own and it's still getting read. It's just not maybe not keeping me solely afloat. I, I guess I should have framed it as the hobbyist artist. It, maybe, maybe that's, yeah. maybe that's more um, clearly codified. Sure. Aaron, what do you think? Cause you, you, uh, you dabble in various arts and commodity arts, you know, with, a, with, with uh, graphic design and podcasting and uh, things of like that. What, uh, what do you feel this, uh, this current age of independent artists and, hobbyist artist. Yeah, I'm glad you recodified it because uh, in a sense, all art is independent to some degree <laughs> or another. And I guess, honestly, I, I don't know how Mike would feel about it as an author, but yeah, I would say probably what I dabble in more is co- would be commercial art versus fine art. I think uh, I, I kind of, what some of what Michael said resonated with me because at the end of the day, the amount of hustle you're willing to put into both tuning your craft, your skill, your message, whatever it is you want to say, plus understanding how to market yourself and to get into like have have people receive your message, like your stuff, be aware of your stuff. It's easy, at least in, in the United States and other places of privilege, it's easy to put that out there as long as you have if you have something interesting to say and legitimate skills and talent that you've built up and a savviness of how to put it out there, then you should be able to get hits and should be able to make a living. I'm not the best. I say that. And now, so go to go back to your hobbyist artist 
piece of the conversation. It's not what my primary focus is. I've put in a lot of time over my life. I'm 43 years old doing with lots of different creative endeavors. And uh, it's hard for me. Like one thing that I think it takes to be successful uh, as an artist, probably of any genre is to focus on a specific style a specific tonality, overall tonality to your work. Not that you can't switch it up over time, but spending a good deal of time in one specific area is what it also takes to probably build an audience and garner success. And I'm not good at that. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, I definitely have different influences that I like that might range from comic book artists to graphic designers of the of of the mid-century you know european and american sensibilities or whatever um and i find myself dabbling around all the time in those influences in my own work and and trying to do different things and incorporate it into my work so so yeah focus focus of vision i guess is the other piece that that is probably key now but to bring it back there's no reason i don't do art for a living commercial or fine or otherwise. I'm in business, I'm in marketing, but there's no reason a person can't continue if you have a creative bone in your body to have that as a side thing, whether it's for money or for passion. And mm-hmm. yeah, build, continue to build up those 10,000 hours and be as good as you can in whatever creative uh, field you want to pursue on the side. Right. Yeah, and kind of to add... Uh, to what I was saying, I guess there is room for, you know, there's, there's breakthrough people all the time that Halsey, for example, huge music career kind of, kind of got her start, you know, just being like a YouTube artist, but, and I think that's great, but that, that's not going to, that's not going to happen for most people. The reality is, uh, you know, you want to just be able to, sometimes you just want to get your stuff out there. Um, and I, for one, just decided I don't want to sit on, on this heap of content that I've created over the last couple of decades. I want, I want some people to read it, even if it's not everyone, even if I'm not on the same shelf as Stephen King, I want, I want to be out there in the world. And, and there's something sort of freeing about that. I'm not going to be, maybe this isn't going to be my sole form of income. Like it's, it's, it allows me to do it at my own pace. Um, it allows me to, to be a little more courageous in what I write. Yeah. And, and I don't have to, you know, necessarily stick to any, any formulas of the genre that I'm writing in. I can really play jazz experiments and, uh, see what comes out of it. Yeah. To build on that further while also connecting to something Mike said earlier about, you know, pay artists and all that. I think, yes, artists should be paid and compensated. But it's up to the artist to stand firm on what their market rate is or what they believe their market rate is. And they might find that their market rate isn't worth what they think it is some of the time, but they have to try. It's on them to try. They don't have to be on Fiverr. They don't have to participate in that. That said, if they want to, fine, go ahead. Like Those are, those are avenues to make money. But my point is, is that uh, it's on the artist to decide what they're worth and try and get what they're worth. But they should also be willing to work for free if it helps push a passion forward. There's nothing wrong with doing free work and helping people yeah. out and, and doing uh, something to build a portfolio or just as a passion project. Right. So, and, and in fact, that's what will ultimately help you stretch and build your skills. I'd never done a book cover before, which is part of the reason I wanted to work with Michael on this project. Uh, and it's because I was also a fan of the, of, of the project and wanted to be a part of it. So yes, pay artists, 
but artists <laughs> should also know when that, that's, you know, just like anything else in life, you don't do everything for money. <laughs> and right. uh, there's, there's times where uh, it's a, it's about the passion and the fun, right. whatever. Right. And just to build off that and take it back to, you know, th- this is getting a little businessy maybe for <laughs> what we in- set out to say, but you know, I, I never wrote, I didn't write this the first time around to, have it published. In fact, I ha- I was working on several other projects that I was planning to shop around to agents and this would start my writing career. And I was so inspired by where I was living and the people I met on the North Shore, the setting, I just had to write. Like it just it just awoke something in me and where where I'd been sort of stumbling around on these other writing projects for a few years, I had the first draft of Mage out in a month or so, you know, I took my, when I was able to lengthen the book, I took my full year that they gave me to work on it, but the original story just came so fast and furious. And it actually came out of, I, I moved to the North. (laughs) We're doing finger guns. You probably can't tell. Um, I had moved to the North shore and, uh, and I hated it at first. It was, it was a prison sentence. It was, it was something that I had, I had to do because I was at a tough spot uh, in my career and in my life. And I had to go move up North, uh, move in with my cousin and work at the restaurant that he worked at. I had never served before. I had never, I'd never been that far North. I'd been to Duluth a handful of times. If you're familiar with Minnesota geography, but um, (laughs) I, I had never been up there and it was a whole new world to me. And I'd only planned on doing it for a year. And so by the next summer, summer 2010, I was ready to move um, back and it, it felt sad. Like I had become a different person in that time more so than any other time in my life. And I really, I really needed to get it down on paper. And like I said, I like wizards and I like the eighties and that had to get in there somehow, yeah. but I needed to talk about this experience that I was living in. So that's really how it came to. It wasn't because I was like, oh man, this is gonna, this is gonna sell some copies. This was, this was me having to get out there. What I was feeling as I was leaving this place that I thought I was going to hate and grew to love. Well, and it's interesting. And just to kind of uh, put a capper on our, our kind of uh, pay artists for their art. I can't pay rent in exposure bucks type of uh, <laughs> type of, uh, type of aesthetic and, and and mentality is that I think there's also, um, I don't, I don't know, an expectation or entitlement that just because I create content, I deserve compensation for it. It, it doesn't, that's not necessarily a thing also. Right. So it's like, you know, we, we have voices that we want to put out there and have the feeling that maybe somebody would like to share in it. So, so I understand where you're coming from, Michael, of like, basically like this is something that happened in my life. I feel like there's a story that I want to share from that singular transformative experience. And yeah, throw some, throw some trappings and tropes (laughs) that are, that are, that are important to me also while, while making it fun and engaging now um so we're going to talk about uh you know moving to amazon and uh a war for the mages in in just a few but aaron you um i think of all of our gang which includes me and and ryan and caleb who you also do autopod decepticast with i think you were the first one that read the book right 
I might oh, yeah, have I, been the last, actually. Oh, you might. Uh, have been, oh, you know uh, what? I, now that I say that, I think Ryan was actually first. But I uh, just, yeah. I, I just, I remember that you had uh, taken it with you on vacation and and had uh, yeah. read it over there. And so before we kind of transition into talking about the sequel. And yes, eventually we'll talk about your your amazing cover. <laughs> oh art, right, but, but uh, yeah, I mean we'll, we'll we'll get there. It's a it's a long form interview. What do you want? It's it's a free podcast. <laughs> I, I have my exposure bucks already. I I will yeah. I will I will eat this week. It, it, it's fine. Aaron, talk about a little bit about your impressions of the book and what kind of resonated with you, and from that kind of what inspired you to want to work with Michael Andrew. Yeah, well. Um... I bet you didn't expect to be put on the spot like that. It's like, hey, no, tell me about the, the book spot. and why you no, like no, it. No, no, no. <laughs> tell me what happened in chapter four right now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I, I am a notoriously uh, bad reader. And what I mean by that is not that I, I have bad reading skills. I, I would <laughs> read. <laughs> but that's my problem. But I just, I, it's not a normal part of my life. I, I, when I was a kid, I read all the time as an adult. I, I, I watch YouTube videos and listen to podcasts uh, for entertainment. I wish I was a better reader because there's so much great things out there. Uh, and I feel like I, everybody is a smarter, better person if they read. For me to actually take the time to read the book should make Michael feel special <laughs> that I was able to prioritize that. I, vacation is when I read. I don't know what it is. If I'm on vacation, out of the country, whatever, that feels like the right time for me to actually be able to do it. Because I, Honestly, I think part of the reason I don't read because it puts me to sleep, not because the content is boring. There's just something about the physical act of reading that makes me drowsy and I can't. So if I'm on a beach uh, in Mexico, pull out a book, it's okay if I fall asleep a couple hours, wake up, read 30 more pages, fall asleep a couple hours. It's just kind of the, the reading process I've become accustomed to. So that said, I was excited to get the opportunity to uh, read the book and thank you for passing it off. I never took it as a, uh, not that Autopod Decepticast has clout to hand out, but I never saw it as a clout chasing <laughs> move just for, just for clarity uh, on that piece of it. Um, well, and if I can interrupt you really quick, it was kind of funny because uh, you know, after you guys read it, you, you all started trying to, you know, give me my exposure and, and reaching out and be like, where can we find it? And I was like, Whoa, nowhere, man, it's out of print. You have a very <laughs> rare copy there. Well, autograph too. Uh, I, I know, I'm happy to have it. I forced him to autograph it, actually. Mine That's wasn't autographed. Right. I had to face him down and get one. That's right. Uh, I forgot about that. Uh, great memory. But uh, no, the story, I, I just, uh, from my standpoint, just opening it up, it was it immediately was gripping. It was immediately relatable. I feel like it would be relatable regardless of your generation, regardless of whether you were are familiar with 80s uh, pop culture or not. But the 80s pop culture was definitely a thing that uh, helped bring me into the story personally. And I remember thinking, gosh, you know, this, this is a really great book. I would have loved to have had the opportunity to illustrate this cover. I thought it immediately, like three chapters in. I was like, it'd be so fun to do that. And I even thought about just tossing it up as an exercise yeah, or just doing it, you know, personally, it's just a, you know, like a creative exercise to create my own version of the cover. And I never talked to Michael about this, but even 
thought about, you know, what if, what if I were to make a poster or something like that, which is basically a book cover um, that he could, you know, sell his merch or something like that. So all these little creative ideas, it was, it was just inspirational on top of being a well-written, fun story with great twists and turns and great characters and great little uh, moments. You know, it was just inspirational to, for me, visually, as a visual artist, I could see all these different scenes that would, that would make a great uh, poster so, or cover rather. So, yeah. uh, so I was, I was grateful to eventually get that opportunity. And I don't know that we ever, I'm trying to remember, I, I can't remember that we ever talked about it per se, other than I think he had a different illustrator that was going to work on it. And I don't want to, I don't know if this is too political from Michael's standpoint, but just to try and tell the flow of the story, I don't remember when I expressed interest to you at first in working on it, but it's, I felt like at some point I did make it known, or maybe I only sort of half-heartedly made it known, but then heard, then you had somebody else that was actually going to work on that project and it fell through for whatever reason. And, and, uh, you know, we made it a reality and I was um, happy. Yeah. Well, I remember exactly when it was, it was, uh, on, uh, my birthday Skype call Mm -hmm. and it was after quite a few drinks (laughs) into the evening. And, uh, or at least for me, cause it was my birthday, um, that, that you brought that up. And, and I was sort I, I loved the idea. I was like, here's somebody that's actually read the work. Here's someone who I'm already vibing with. And, and here's someone I just, I just love their work. I mean, this is totally, it's, it's kismet really. But the, the nature of when we brought it up, I was like, I don't know how serious he was or if this was just like a, like a thing you throw out at a cocktail party. Cause you're never going to talk to this person again, right. sort of a thing. And I was afraid to reach back around to it, but uh, yeah, I'm really glad it happened. Yeah. No hard feelings to the person that was going to work on it the first time, but I've seen it, her work. She's a great illustrator. I, yeah. I, love, oh, I love her work, incredible. but I'm glad I, I stole the, the gig. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, and to your point of uh, sort of like, you know, you picked up on visual cues and you wanted to do sort of a poster for it. The the number one compliment, I, at least I hope it's a compliment, I get about this book is like it would make such a great movie. And I take it as a compliment because... I sort of, I sort of write like that. I sort of think about that, that pacing of a, of a movie. You know, I don't really, the, the, a lot of authors kind of focus on like, I really need to take three and a half pages to describe the room that we're in right now so that you know what the wallpaper looks like. And that just isn't me. Like, I just, I just want the story. I'm, I'm in love with dialogue. I'm in love with the, the tension that comes from two people talking. Like, that's why I really write because I don't think a lot of books do that. And I don't think a lot of young adult books do that. And I don't think a lot of fantasy books do that where, where it's really a focus on the people and the characters, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about with the big ideas that can come out of like young adult fantasy books, there, there is a lot of, you can fill up with visuals. Um, they're really, you don't have to, once you have like a great idea and a great world and you just have to start, you know, developing a system of magic or of fighting or whatever it is and world building that you takes the focus off of, of the dialogue between people. You don't have these like, you know, really, uh, great moments, uh, or you, you lose some of that sometimes, but the things that come out of just having a conversation between two or three people. That's- and I really want to introduce that back into uh, my book and, and my writing style. Um, I just, I just wanted to build on that um, in terms of, 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, if you're a fantasy author like J.K. Rowling, who is invite, who is in, invented, or any fantasy author, J.R.R. Tolkien, you've invented this whole world where you have to explain what this new world is, how this new world works, and what are the like all these intricalities that nobody's really. It's it's just complex. I like the yeah. the spells what, what are the and rules? the spell system. Yes, and like exactly like the, it's a totally different culture. What but in your world, you're the place you've created, despite it being 1980s United States, which may not be immediately relatable to a younger author. It's it, it's still it's like it's like you don't have to really explain it, right? Like it's it's right. it's a thing that exists and that we get it's sort of in the in the zeitgeist even your sort of structure of how uh the hierarchy of magic works and things like that it's just very it's very simple you don't have to like really like nerd out about it and get you know do a lot of research to really understand it it's it's very simple and the story is really told through conversations through characters sorry i'm doing i maybe i'm doing your job for you but as a reader (laughs) as a person who liked it i mean and maybe that's part of what made it so relatable i could immediately jump in i didn't have to do a lot of hard work to get my head around what this new world is i could just get into what the characters are feeling and being motivated by and and all of that is really cool but that said the little supernatural unique things about your story still did were really cool and and drove a lot of neat things and and twists and turns. Thank you. Yeah. I like to, I like to experiment with some of that stuff. Uh, I, I, I come up with pretty crazy concepts and I'm like, I just need to own this. I just need to get this on paper. Someone's going to appreciate how weird and wacky and out there that is. Mm -hmm. But uh, back to what you're saying is it's a first person narrated story and there's a certain realism in that if you were narrating a story, you wouldn't necessarily have to explain to the person what the rules of magic are. So that might be deceptively the the sneakiest, toughest thing about writing the story is, is, you know, slipping that information in without it feeling, because at some point it's like, well, why do you need to turn to the camera and tell us how magic works? Aren't we all, aren't we all mages living in this, in this version of the eighties? Like, shouldn't we all know this? So I try to, I try to poke fun at that and play with that a little bit. And, and the vibe I want to get in the stories is sort of that Ferris Bueller vibe where like, I can talk to you a little bit out of time. Um, I, I, you can, you do have the luxury of turning to the camera a little bit, uh, when you're the first person narrating. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I went with in writing my book, but there's not a lot of room for like, let me sit down and tell you how this magic system works. You're just going to have to trust me and I'll get you there. I'll get you to the end of the story. I'll tell you what you need to know when you need to know it, but I'm not going to have a prologue where I, you know, show you the map of the world. And, and this is the, this is the countries and this is the resources of the land sort of a thing yeah exactly and that was that was something i i really really appreciated and and one of the 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 words that we were kind of dancing around or one of the the descriptions we were dancing around is it's approachable i like that we're not just doing exhibit exposition dumps i i don't know why i have such a hard time with that word (laughs) i don't know why i can't say exposition but if only you were a podcaster you might have a better grasp of the language (laughs) and every time i do it it comes across as exhibition and it's like that's something else entirely but no i mean there's i mean sure there's exposition and and explaining things but there aren't charts 
and graphs and right. extended chapters. Like there is some Stephen King DNA here, some connective tissue. But the one thing that I find, one of the things I find off-putting about reading King is that we spend chapters upon chapters just explaining the world and just explaining what's going on. This is very much Aaron Sorkin town where we're just walking and talking and just, you yes. just open up everything as we go. My which, hero. Which, My which other I hero, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other Aaron. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess we've reached the point in, in the conversation where for, for me being on the, the outside, what's, what's the cart before the horse situation? It's like, is it, is it the sequel that you're like, Hey man, I have an idea for a sequel. I'm going to write a sequel. I'm going to publish it. And then through that, I'm going to do a new version of coming of mage or kind of uh, walk us through some of the, the sequence of events, because really like, you know, as, as, a friend of both of yours, some of this stuff just kind of kind of happened through social media. Like, oh, by the way, you know, here's here's Aaron's sick ass cover. Go buy the new copy of the book. Oh, by the way, here's a here's an entire 300 plus page <laughs> sequel with an equally boss cover on there. Shaboom, literary heft. So, so yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah. just kind of take us through some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, when I first wrote it, obviously I didn't think of it as a trilogy, but when I re when I kind of rewrote it and reworked it for that publisher, I sort of, I sort of envisioned it as a trilogy. And I, and I thought here's, here's two other really fun settings and importance to the story that I want to do, but I just became disenchanted with it after everything kind of fell through. So I left it off on a cliffhanger planning to do a trilogy. And I just didn't want to work with that publisher uh, ever again. So that I'm, Sorry, I'm pulling back the curtain. This is going to get into the business side for just a second, but we'll get out of it. But I, I actually had to wait until their rights to the book expired. So for a long time, it just sat in limbo. There were copies floating out there. Um, and finally, I got the opportunity to sign a, sign a contract or unsign a contract, however you want to think about it, and get the rights back to my book, which allowed me to start thinking about a sequel. But it didn't really happen until, uh, I guess if you want to call this a silver lining of COVID-19, I just said, you know what, I need I need a project. I need something to work on in here because if I don't write it now when I'm not leaving my house at all, when, when am I really going to yeah. work on this? And for a long time, I struggled. I had all these crazy tendrils of ideas for a sequel. And finally, it just clicked. Finally, this this the thing that I was missing from, from crafting a proper sequel just just hit me and and it it started you know the whole sweater came when i pulled that string right uh it just i just wrote it you know in in about nine months time it was just out there what i couldn't do over the over a decade uh one of those things came out of um if i'm being honest a mistake in the first novel uh one of the threads i forgot to wrap up from book one basically allowed me to unlock what i wanted to do for the sequel um, if I had wrapped up this one thing, you wouldn't have the sequel. You would have, you could have a book too that was just there for shits and gigs, but this allowed it to be a much more meaningful sequel to wrap up that loose thread. Awesome. And unfortunately, I can't tell you what that loose thread is because right. it'd be a major spoiler I was of book say one. That, that is because it's like I think I know what you're talking about. And yeah, no, we yeah. we can't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, and and if I can just give a quick shout out too, I had a couple uh, awesome readers, you know, that ne that never let Coming of Mage die. Like 
uh, a good friend of mine, Carrie, would would always reach out to me. When's that sequel coming? When's that sequel coming? And some days it was like an ache. It was a burden. And I just, you know, I remember sometimes I'd just be like, never, you know, or winky face uh, and then the reply. And it's, and, uh, but I'm glad she kept pushing me. I'm glad she kept asking for it because it, when I was writing the sequel, it really helped to know that someone cared about that cliffhanger. Someone wanted to know what happened to these characters and it allowed me to put it out in the world, get it out there. Well, and we've gotten this far in the conversation and we, uh, we, we got to give some love to your partner, Kate also. I mean, I, I have, I have no doubt she's been instrumental in, in keeping you motivated and keeping the, the, yeah. the project on online. Yeah. And she absolutely, it's kind of funny though. She actually didn't read it until this new edition of coming of mage came out. Um, <laughs> she had read bits and pieces, but you know what? The the character is so close to me. I really can't blame her because I, I wouldn't want to live with myself and then read a book about myself like yeah. in the same thing. Uh, it's, you know, it's cool when other readers read it, they can kind of escape into it. But uh when you're basically hearing the story while doing the dishes with me, um, you know, it's, it's not the same. Um, but she, and she also said uh, she was a little nervous too, because it was so autobiographical. I think she was a little nervous what she would might hear in it. And um, she was super supportive in that she moved up North to live with me, you know, really kind of a scary move. It's we were living up there basically on the Canadian border and, and she came up and uh, was my rock and, and how it got me through it. So, so yeah, but when she finally did get around to reading it just a few weeks ago, this new edition of coming of mage, she really liked it. And she said, I, I guess I don't know what I was so scared about in reading it. Uh, I'm really glad I did. And for a long time, I didn't know she was reading it. She kind of kept it she um, bought it and kept it a secret and she was reading it right next to me. And, and so now I'm going back and thinking like all the times that she laughed at these little moments or swore at these things that happen. Um, it was about my book. And I think that was kind of cool. I like to analyze it a little bit. <laughs> that's neat. That's, yeah. uh, that, that's, that's a lot of fun. I, I love yeah. it. And there's, and to be honest, there's, there's more, people that I can't even get around to thanking a um, ton of people that helped me with the distribution of the book and telling people about the book and sharing it on social media and uh, people that did the covers that are even in this call. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there's, I had tons of help more so than I could ever fit on an acknowledgement page of the book. And so if I didn't thank you personally, you should have been thanked and just consider the book a thank you in itself. <laughs> oh, why, why? Thank you. I, I, I appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> These guys giving me more exposure than I deserve. Come on. Nah, nah, nah. It's good stuff. And, and, and uh, you know, it's the reason for the season and, and we appreciate everybody taking the time. So let's, I mean, so let's um, the Amazon deal. Uh, could yeah. you, could you talk about, how the mechanics of publishing through Amazon works, because I, I remember a couple years ago, or maybe it's more than a few years ago at this point, I, I remember hearing rumblings of Amazon engaging in publishing deals with independent authors. And I remember a, a person that I was a fan of who was a podcaster and a uh, comic book writer at the time being really uh, disproportionately salty about it saying like, you know, um, Oh man, th this means just anybody can just go out and just publish. They, they own fan fiction. And I remember 
being really kind of off put by that take. And it, it to me sounded very gatekeepery like, Mm -hmm. Oh, well I it's, it's okay for, I'm entitled to have my voice heard because I've been an anointed as a, you know, published author or a writer. And, you know, anybody that, that writes fic is below me. I mean, I'm way paraphrasing, but that's because that was a person that I was kind of influenced by that kind of informed my perception of what publishing through Amazon was. It's like, Oh, it's just people putting out their, their fanfic. Um, right. Uh, right. Could I guess first, could you uh, uh, dispel that myth and then maybe kind of talk about your experience uh, with uh, with uh, publishing through Amazon? Yeah, you know, uh, it's grown a lot. The first time I published Coming of Mage, uh, you know, a decade ago, uh, it was a totally it was a new world. The Kindle had like just come out. I still had I still had to like fight to tell people what a Kindle was. I had to explain to them and. Uh, they had to, uh, that's the first obstacle I had to get over. It was like, you don't, you don't need an actual piece of hardware. It's an app. Well, what's an app? Oh my God, let's start from scratch here. Um, but now it, it's much simpler and they have a lot, like I can get my book on print. Um, it doesn't have to just be an ebook. They have their own printing press at Amazon. And the thing that's great about it is that there, there's no need to like print, say, 500 copies up front, which is where you run into a lot of that red flaggy stuff um, yeah, from yeah. from shady publishers of like, well, listen, if you agree to buy X amount of copies yourself, uh, you know, we'll we'll print, we'll we'll promise to print a thousand of them. What they don't tell you a lot of times is is when they print all those up front, and if someone returns them or they don't sell them, you're kind of on the hook to pay for them. You really need to watch out for that too. So this press that I worked at, I actually got like a negative royalty check at one time where I didn't need to pay them money, but they're like, you won't be getting a positive check from us until we sell these copies that someone returned. Stuff like that, that shouldn't even happen. But with Amazon's model of this like print on demand thing, I have my ebook out there. I have my paperback out there. I set the prices um, within reason. They do require you to set it to a certain amount, but yeah. They they take a very small cut and and it's less wasteful. I mean, they're printing exactly what people are ordering, and in a lot of cases, they're they're fulfilling the two day requirement for like Amazon Prime. Yeah, which is I don't even know how that's possible. How they can like take the order, print the book, and have it out Monday morning sitting on on the doorstep. Yeah, because like I I got my copies. I'm holding them up for for the camera that nobody could see, but <laughs> I got my copies as if I had just ordered like some John Grisham books. I mean, it was yeah. it was like yeah. no different. It's like you know, I I clicked on them, I put them in my cart, I ordered them, and then yeah, with within two days they were at my house, and right. and and there there there's a surrealness to it where it's like, dude. This is my friend's book, and it's. I mean, we'll we'll talk about this more with uh with Aaron's art in in a minute here. But it's like it's it's a pardon this for being reductive, but it's a real book. I mean, yeah. like it's got great cover stock. The pages feel good. It has that. Uh, it, it smells like a book. It's it's mm. a book. So yeah. I, and, yeah. And, and there's just something really, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I want to be careful about, you know, kind of <laughs> disnifying Amazon saying, Oh, the magic right. of publishing through Amazon, the, you know, the, the magic of right. Amazon, but it really is something special where as a, 
a independent hobbyist author like your friends and and fans and all that can can buy this and get like a nice handsome very real uh print copy and knowing that you uh as as the artist aren't like you know buying like a a disproportionate inappropriate amount that you're just sitting on and hoping that your friends and family will buy totally totally yeah and uh i mean jeff bezos is kind of a spacefaring fuck but <laughs> but but he does authors right independent authors right uh you know standard in the in the industry is that you you a normal author would only get 10% of their book sales right so if you have a $12 book you're only getting a buck 20 if you have a $6 book you're making like 60 cents off of every copy sold amazon gives you a 70% cut of your of your book sales that's a oh my huge God, really huge amount going into the pocket of you versus them so and the, and then for the print cost they they take a lot uh, a lot more, but they're, I mean, they're printing it. They're, they're using the materials and, and I don't have to put anything up front. I don't have to worry about printing it off myself or, or calling the publisher and being like, Hey, I need you to print a hundred more copies and stuff like that. It's just there. It's happening behind the scenes. I can, I can go about my day knowing that people's orders are being fulfilled. And that kind of goes back to the first time my book was in print is that I had to, I had to do all that myself. I had to buy 500 copies basically myself at a reduced rate. And I had to package them and bubble mailers and send them out to people. And it was a disaster. I didn't, I didn't know that stuff. I didn't account for the price of shipping when I, when I priced the book and I ended up basically breaking even on my on everyone that pre-ordered a copy and it was tough because people were being so supportive and like we bought you book and it's like i am hurting paying for these bubble mailers and shipping trying to get you this copy Um, but i'm really glad that you're engaging with the material (laughs) yeah yeah but uh yeah that's that's something that's it's has been great to to take off my plate just knowing that they're kind of fulfilling that stuff on their end so now that the the books are out there the coming of mage saga is complete for mm-hmm. now for um now. <laughs> so um talk a little bit about what what the response has been you know kind of like what what are you what are you hearing from folks yeah uh well like i said that number one compliment is it, it reads like a movie which beautiful thank you for that yeah it's been really fun to to see what people think about it. Uh, I know the first book, everyone really liked Celia, the character Celia, who was a pretty small part in the book. Um, She was sort of my Poe Dameron, right? The great story is JJ Abrams really didn't want Poe Dameron to survive the first act. He was sort of the guy that you just kill off right away. Um, And he ended up liking it and people ended up liking Poe Dameron. So he stuck around for the trilogy. Um, And that's kind of how Celia was. I didn't, I didn't really plan for her to be more in the story. And then I had a, crucial spot for us so she so she came back in later chapters and then now she's a huge player i guess spoilers in the sequel yeah um she's got she's got a lot of a lot of play in there and she's a great character she is so important to the world because quinn the main character of the story is he's he shouldn't be considered like the the poster boy for mage being a mage, right? Like he really doesn't keep up on his spell work. He's not a great mage. He doesn't know a lot of spells. Um, he focuses on other things, pop culture. He's more into that sort of thing. He doesn't really care about that. Uh, and when he meets Celia, Celia provides this whole other word, world for him of 
here's what you can do. Here's the potential that you don't have. Like, and she's not doing it in like a mentor way. She's just like, how do you not know how to tie your shoes without your hands? Like <laughs> this should be mage one Oh one. Yeah. So yeah, I think she's a great character. And I think people seeing people warm up to her and respond to her has been like the surprise delight of these books and just who uh, on a big, on a more general scale, just who, who people gravitate towards, like all these great characters that are in this book, what makes you angry when they do? What makes you sad? What makes you happy? What makes you laugh? Like, that's just been the big thrill. Not very specific maybe to your question, but I think no, that's, no, that's that's really great to hear. That's awesome. I mean, that that's one of the coolest things about making art is basically where you there there's a transaction at a certain point mm-hmm. where it belongs to the audience. And, and it's like their impressions, their thoughts, their, their imaginations. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, we're all in Transformers uh, fandom. I mean, I mean, look at ship culture, you know, I mean, that that's mm-hmm. something that that's completely born out of people's imaginations and interpretations of the characters and by taking something that was there and expanding on it and putting their, their own impression to it. So it's that, that, that perspective is always fascinating to me when you kind of imprint your own sensibilities onto a, a, a piece of art. It's, it's very fascinating. Sure. Yeah. And along with that, I think uh, if anyone wants to engage with me good or bad about what they thought about the book, please bring it on because I think there, I noticed this, the, the first book that I wrote that there, there's sort of like a, uh, I don't know, like sort of like you don't want to engage with the author, right? Like you don't want to ask the tough questions and, and you know, dig into some of the material. But I yeah. love that. I, I think it's I think it's great that you're buying my book. I think it's great that you're posting pictures, posing with it. But if it just sits on your shelf with dust on it, never read, that's dead in the water. I yeah. want you to read it. I want you to think about these topics. I want you to come back and tell me what you loved, what you hated. If you hated something about it, let me know. I would love to have a discussion with you about it. Mm-hmm. I hope you love it. I hope it's, uh, I had fun writing every part of it. I hope it's as fun for you reading it. Um, yeah. But let me know. I, I love it. So so while we're here then, where where can folks get a hold of you if they wanted to engage with you? Sure, sure. Well, uh, I'd love people to talk to me on Twitter and it's just at my name, at Michael Andrews. I spell Michael weird if you hadn't noticed. Uh, it's M-I-K-E-L. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my handle for everything. So hit me up on Twitter and and tell me why tell me why coming of mage sucked. Uh, at me <laughs> <laughs> as the kids might say at me yeah <laughs> well i mean you you talked about uh the the books sitting on the shelf and speaking of them sitting on the shelf if you put them side by side that does look quite handsome those uh those yes. spines align really quite well oh, um aaron's the master so, aaron's so the master <laughs> aaron it's your turn. You, I think you got a lucky copy, uh, a couple of copies of oh, Blender yeah? in alignment. <laughs> Oh, I'll be no. darned. Sorry, we don't have to focus on that. Sorry. Aaron, I think you and I are both like a little self-deprecating of our work and it's hard. <laughs> it's hard, but you did you did a, an incredible job matching up those covers and aligning everything. And I guess before we start talking to Aaron about it, one thing that I, I wanted, some of my favorite book series have like these very, like, very similar covers um, that change a lot of like subtle little nuanced things, but at the heart of it, it's the same image. And, and I think that might've been tough a little bit for Aaron uh, because I think he wanted to really like express, you know, a lot more creativity. And I kind of like tried to rein him in a little bit. I was like, I, I want, 
I want there to be some connective tissue between these covers. And he found a way to like do it in such a way that I didn't even know was possible. Like he still managed to impart major uh, creative license on them that I love. So major, you would say major. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Aaron, it's your turn. Take us there. Tell, tell me the stories. Tell me everything. I want to know the hardships that you went as, through. Now is your time to blast well, me. <laughs> as, I, as I'm giving high fives to my, my uh, coming of mage saga books as they're sitting on the table here. <laughs> well, to pick up on what Michael was saying, I mean, honestly, no. I mean, it was a pretty easy process. There wasn't any, uh, at least in terms of, you know, was he a diva or anything on, on trying to like, or did he try to micromanage the cover or anything like that? Like, like I, I wouldn't say really, honestly. And when it comes to the second book uh, and, and any creative interpretation, I no, I appreciated the conversation and dialogue. I mean, maybe what would be most interesting or revealing would just be the process of, of what we went through in terms of, so I, I think, I was pretty articulate in how we actually got the conversation started on how we do a cover, but, and, and honestly, and he was going to do a republishing of the first book first. So that's the thing we had to tackle first, right? Is what's the concept look vibe. And I think it was always going to be the case that the sort of tone and look was going to translate like they they had to marry together in some way we'll we'll figure out exactly how they're going to marry together but they're going to look like they're part of a family really just starts with the brief right like we had a call uh it was a fun drunken call where i gushed (laughs) over my fandom of the first book and uh, you know just try to hear from his perspective what some of the most important elements are i had in my mind what i already thought were some kind of iconic potential imagery uh, but wanted to hear it from the author's POV as well and uh, try to just, you know, get into the deeper insights of the book and deeper themes. You're going to look at the cover and you're going to say, uh, this looks very simple <laughs> and and like, you know, clean shapes and texture. And but that's that's from a lot of distillation. I mean, after having that conversation, I go back into a hole and I sketch out a handful of ideas and then we got back together reviewed some of those ideas and settled on a direction that we felt was best and yeah there was some feedback after that direction was settled in terms of subtle things but i mean that's typical in a sort of client commercial artist relationship uh and nothing atypical i would say he was uh mike uh, regardless of what you've said, you are not a, a, a demon <laughs> client or anything like that. <laughs> Good. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, uh, you know, from a process perspective, it's talking to your person, trying to get down to the, like, try to really distill the, the core of what the, the story is, what it means, and symbolize that. For me, my the style I wanted to work with as simple as possible, and Mike Seibert, you 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 wanted to go down this rabbit hole with me whenever we were doing Autopod to Cinecast the other week, like uh, the influences. I mean, it's it's the eighties. It's so there's a lot to draw from eighties eighties nerd stuff. Uh, there's plenty to draw from, right? Of uh, trying to also like incorporate that fantasy element as well, and. The well was everything from 
you know, young adult novels that were out at the time, but probably more influenced even by vi- like video cassette tape covers and Atari video game cartridges and uh, and things like that. And, and honestly, Michael and I, we collaborated on that as well. I mean, for those out there who are doing this kind of thing, the tactic that we used was, uh, I think we had a Google shared folder. And if there were things that struck our eye that we wanted to talk about, how it could be incorporated into the aesthetic, uh, we would throw it in there. And then, and and we had, we had a couple of meetings and uh, we would go through, we would go through those visuals and just talk about why it was meaningful or why we thought it might have impact. Although it was part of the the influence, part of the the inspiration, I didn't, I certainly didn't recreate a Stranger Things poster, but there, uh, if you were to really look into it, there, the, there are elements of that there, whether it's a, a hint of a color nod or, or really even just the idea of like calling back to the 80s. Well, so, yeah, if, I I can, mean, yeah, if I can interject quick, uh, I think yeah, one ahead. of the, the most fun things for me and surprising things about the, the collaboration process was um, that it was it wasn't just us talking about it. It was, hey, give me a collection of images and things that are, are meaningful to you and, and favorite book covers and, and album covers. And just, I want to get in your headspace when I think of it. And it was also a great learning thing too, because Aaron had to, you know, he, he forced me to sort of strip down coming of mage to what it was. He said, you know, what are the themes? What are the tones? What do you want to get across? And in like an elevator pitch and how do we represent that visually? So it really forced me to like, think about like what are the main beats of the story what are the main themes and lessons of the story um and i and i did not anticipate that coming out of the cover creation process i really thought it was you know we would talk once and then the book would be in print next time i saw him but it was it was a lot more back and forth and it was very cool yeah i mean and and it's not an uncommon process in in the advertising or design industry what we probably would the equivalent of what some would call a mood board that basically it's just kind of like, let's create a collection of things that are meaningful to this project aesthetically. And um, ultimately, I mean, you can't weave it all into the the finished product, but you can at least get a sense of where someone's head is, what kind of style they uh, is making sense. And, just really dial in on, on what matters and ultimately focus on what matters. And, yeah. and so we made the first cover and I felt r- really good about it, selected a concept, moved forward. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for the second book because A, I hadn't read it. To be honest, I still haven't I hadn't read wrote it. it. I, 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 <laughs> I haven't had a beach vacation yet, so I still haven't read it. So when, so when it comes to, but I, you know, from reading the first book, I knew enough of, I feel like I knew enough about the universe that I felt confident in being able to do something for it. But obviously we had another brief, like it was like another briefing session where we talked about uh, what it was, what it was going to be, what are the key, uh, how, what's the tonal shift from the first book? What what are things that are going to, that are going to, um, you know, dominate the, this new world. And, and honestly, Michael will say, I think this is probably where Michael will say he was feeling a bit too prescriptive and where the art went. But honestly, it was a saving grace. In our conversation, he was, in this case, able to really articulate some of the deviations from the first cover by basically saying you know, that the whole hand, the hand imagery really does carry over into the new uh, world. 
but here's where things are a little bit different in terms of where the story is going. And we were able to kind of get to, you know, what we need to take from inspiration to take that sort of core hand <laughs> as the centerpiece with something in, in the palm to the new book. So yeah, yeah well, so honestly, that it was honestly a blessing. I, I mean, I probably put in as much work as I did for the first book, but I didn't have like from an art standpoint, making the art, but I didn't have so much upfront fuzzy uh, thinking time where I had to ponder what it was going to look like. <laughs> so that was nice. Yeah. I mean, you had done the majority of the heavy lifting already. It, you're not starting from zero. Right. And I, I, I think one of the, um, you know, you talked about there being sort of like clean lines and everything looks pretty clean and maybe deceptively sim simple, but across the two covers, even though they do look pretty similar, uh, similar, there is a lot of like Easter eggs hidden in each and, and a lot of things that's what kind of surprised me is like, we were able to hide a lot of um, meanings and themes in just a very, you know, just again, deceptively simple uh, images. And I think that's really exciting. And one of the challenges too, I threw Aaron a couple pretty big challenges. One, I, I really needed to keep the cover of the book from, from not giving too much away because uh, one of the biggest, one of the biggest uh, uh, themes twists reveals happens uh, within the first couple chapters. And I needed the book, the blurb, the cover, everything to, to not give away what that dividing moment is. And so we really had a challenge in the second book to, to, yeah, there is lots of cool imagery and stuff that we could sample for the cover, but it needs to play into the mystery because book two really is a mystery where book one was uh, kind of a mystery, but more of just a uh, ambling through the summer book two has a very uh, mystery driven plot. The other challenge I threw at Aaron and, and he nailed was uh, I really wanted the book cover to look textured old, like an old beat up book uh, that's yeah. been around since the eighties on someone's shelf. As much as I want people to take it off the shelf and read it, I want it to look like it's been sitting there for a very long time. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of like textures and cracks and, and people don't realize like how, how tough that is to make something look kind of uh, beat up and used. It's, it's that old star Wars thing, like, right. Like uh, making the millennium Falcon, making all the ships look like this used, built, lived in universe. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very it's very tough to do when it's you're working with a brand new thing and I and I was very specific I said I want smudges I want grease stains I want you know coffee if you can work in coffee oil stains all of it I want I want it to look like that and and he came through on all of it there's a really there's a really cool depth of texture to it. It's like I'm I'm holding, you know, both copies in my hands and it has, you know, kind of like that that uh intentional distress around the edges and it's just it's just really cool. It's like, yeah. you know, so I so I really appreciate both of you guys kind of uh I mean I'm a huge process guy. So I mean, I I I love this stuff. I I'm not an artist myself. So anytime where we can kind of go under the hood a little bit and kind of talk about uh the stuff in in greater depth i i really appreciate it plus it, it kind of helps me articulate it better when i when i talk <laughs> about it because every time i've brought up the covers i was like yeah and, and my buddy aaron did the covers and it's like this this you know kind of retro cool vibe it looks kind of like uh kind of looks like an atari game cartridge i don't know go buy the book it's rad well yeah and, and aaron i don't know if it's too proprietary but i mean can you get into how you created some of that texture i mean what was your where do you even start on oh, something like I mean, that uh, yeah i can and um it's uh, 
it's funny that that Mike Seibert said Atari game cartridge because literally, I mean, looking at pictures of Atari game cartridges on the internet, like like even the old like really generic games like baseball, bowling, yeah. <laughs> like combat, like, and it, and yeah, <laughs> I mean, battle or whatever. You see some of it in some of the the design like graphic lines of like the stripes uh, in the ocean, Adidas, like they're like Adidas stripes. They're kind of a callback to that. So. So um, it's astute, and honestly, we had versions of the cover. Like first, we got into the concept and approved the concept, but then there was the execution, and there were mock-ups of the cover that were definitely w- even way more blatant uh, Atari video game covers. But well, then- you actually did one that 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 was an Atari game cartridge, and it looked so cool. But at the end of the day, your artwork was so beautiful, and the Atari cartridge itself sort of like shrinks that image down right and just puts it in a little sticker label and i was like i just can't do that i need the full wraparound experience of this i wasn't that precious about it but i appreciate saying that (laughs) (laughs) but but to yeah i mean to to your question then michael the process or like in terms of the tools the process whatever everything everything starts and for me personally, in a hand sketch sort of phase, uh, little thumbnails uh, in a sketch pad that I have, and I don't, I don't do enough drawing by hand, honestly. But uh, starts with a sketch pad, and the you take the you know of the 15, 20 ideas you might like. You take I take a couple and just push them a little bit further. At that point, I take the iPhone out, take a picture of it, put it on my Apple Drive. And then I go into a program called Procreate, which is an amazing, I mean, it's a professional art quality. I mean, people, people use it for published art. I tend, I do actually, elements of using Procreate do go in finished work. In this case, it didn't. It was just really about moving those sketches forward uh, a little bit further, which is where we got to the presentation stage. So uh, just a little bit more refined sketches, getting into colors a little bit at that stage. And then um, uh, when it came time to the, the concept being approved and moving on, I, I cannot promote enough uh, a suite of software. It's competitive to uh, Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator are really the industry standard when it comes to art and, uh, and design. But um, Affinity, Affinity Photo and Affinity Design are the suite of software that I use. They have a great version. I use an iPad Pro 12 whatever inch with my Apple Pencil. And they have a, their mobile version has all the functionality of their desktop version, but it just makes it easy to be able to work. Uh, I did so much of the work on this cover when I was doing other things. We had some family emergencies and 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 you know tragedies nothing crazy the typical typical family tragedies but tragedies nonetheless the things that come uh, up when you're trying to do a project right (laughs) right. but i was able to be on the road and and work on it and those programs work i think arguably better on um, the mobile than they do on the desktop but um, that they're full functional fully functional illustration and vector design programs at, that uh, that if they ever want me to come and, and be a shill for them, I'm happy to. Because <laughs> I, I, love, I love their software. It was done in a combination of both of those, mostly Affinity Designer, which for those, this will be maybe a little too inside baseball for some people, but Affinity Designer is basically... Think of it like Adobe Illustrator. There's vector art that you can do, which vector clean mathematical lines. But 
it you also have the ability to seamlessly work in bit what it would be bitmap art which is you know more photographic or tech like being able to put in more photographic textures um, and things like that you're able to seamlessly work in those two worlds and 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 bring a lot of texture and depth to your work that would take in the adobe world flipping between two programs to accomplish and you can do it in one so anyway that's my that's my pitch on that as far as the process <laughs> as far as the the literal process goes drop no. that link below to affinity.com uh, <laughs> and we'll, uh, get our collect our checks you use promo code msrp10 yeah. to save 10 <laughs> no please don't do that because that's not an no. actual thing oh that's the other thing hang on just to pitch it one step further they're also insanely cheap for what they are i think you can get the uh, iPad versions for something like ten or twenty dollars. The desktop versions for like forty dollars. You have to. I mean, Adobe is now a. Uh, it has been for quite some time. Yeah. A uh, subscription model, and so whether you want the newest update or not, you have to pay you know five hundred dollars a year for everything. So uh, all the updates, at least to date, uh, with Affinity, are free. You just get updates. So anyway, and there's it's a really it's really good software. It's it's nice. And the the photo editing side, which is something I've been getting into more, is is great with it also. I still use Adobe Lightroom for a lot of stuff, but I mm -hmm. use Affinity Photo instead of Photoshop. Okay, now I'm done shilling. <laughs> so to tie it all together, kids out there, uh, you can write your own book, design your own cover, and then podcast about it. You don't need us three there Yahoo's to do it. You can do it all in one from the comfort of your desktop. Well, and that brings it all the way back around to independent artists and and uh, hobby artists, you know, it's or hobbyists. And it's it's interesting how the, the barriers aren't there that were like when we were coming up and it's like, oh, man, like, you know, I got to I got to get signed with a record label or like I need to get signed to like a big publisher. You know, this whole perspective Truly. of, quote unquote, getting signed. It's like, no, you could just you could just put stuff out there and cultivate your own audience and i think all of us are doing that in our own kind of ways and honestly on this podcast the reason why i go so deep on that stuff is because i've learned things from listening to folks just talk about it conversationally on podcasts so yeah i mean sure maybe we're, we're shills for the things that we like but you know it's i i get i get really bristly when folks kind of refer to uh content creators as like influencers and stuff but like in our own weird kind of way we do kind of uh influence through what our own preferences are you know it's like oh i you know i started listening on this podcatcher because that's what this person that i listen to listens on you know it's like those things just kind of come up organically and i don't know if as content creators we we need to shy away from that like you know i i i still am amazed that in the year of our lord 2021 folks are still like oh don't talk about another podcast on my podcast it's like what are you what are you talking about it's like you know i yeah. just i i just i just don't understand it's like you know it's um anyway i i'm i'm, I'm we're all there's a lot of politics quote, uh, high school musical yeah. <laughs> well no there is i mean i feel like at, i guess at our level there's no harm in collaborating and it's what you have to do to to build each other up and and support but 
I guess I can understand the politics of uh, people who make up like true influencers, but at the same time, me shilling for affinity, I use the software. I'm passionate about the software, you know, so many, um, random Instagram influencers, uh, they're the things they promote are just because they're paid to promote it. They're not really right. using the product. If I ever get to a level where I can promote things that uh, I have never interacted with, great. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I would like to think I'd have some integrity. You know, I think of, um, there are several people that are probably in the million plus YouTube follower range that when they promote something, one of their sponsors, I, I believe them when they say it's yes. a product they've used and that they yeah. can stand behind. Like, I do think there are people that are in a, in a, a, a 1 million plus range of, of followers that actually don't shill for something that they don't have some level of belief in. But I feel like, like if you're talking about an, like a rando Instagram model, that's got 500 K or whatever, chances are they probably don't care <laughs> that much about what they're shilling. It's about the cash grab. Hey, that's okay. Get that bag. But um, <laughs> for me and for us, I wouldn't feel any guilt about it because I don't have any reason at this point to shill for something I don't actually care about. Right, right. right <laughs> exactly. Right. And I think it's I think it's important that we differentiate between two, like the influencers that are making their career about, uh, you know, promoting these products. And, and like you're saying, the millionaire model that, this is just another line on the ledger that she might not even notice, or they might not even notice, uh, you know, coming through. So, yeah, I, I think the key word we're looking for is authenticity. I mean, cause like I've, it, it's funny. It's like, I, I complain sometimes about having to like skip commercials on some of my favorite corporate commercial podcasts, but sure enough, and, and this actually just happened very recently. I actually used a service that was advertised on a podcast and sure enough, I actually used their promo code. I, I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I got a promo code for that. That's awesome. Right, so right. yeah, it's it's just, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know where I'm going with with any of that, but to, to bring it back to the coming of Mage Saga and we are uh, chatting with the author Michael Andrews and cover artist and design extraordinaire Aaron Tweet. I, I guess the last question on that is, well, what's next? Yeah, what is next? Uh, well, I guess the next pandemic, we can get book three out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, um, but to be a little more serious about it, I wanted to do the trilogy for a long time. And, and what I ended up doing was sort of combining books two and three into one book, into one uh, massive tome, as uh, Mike can tell you. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The 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 place that I took the story was very unexpected. And again, spoilers, yeah. can't talk about it as much as I'd love to. So read the book and reach out to me on a DM. But uh yeah, I would I would love to do more. I think I have it's pretty crazy. I think I found a way to work in uh, another series that I'd planned to write um into this. So now I might organically get to do this book that I always wanted to do and keep it in this in this series. But I will say the the saga of Quinn Sullivan, college age mage, is is over as of this sequel. Mm -hmm. His his story has the uh, complete arc, as they say. Got it. So, do we call this what a duology? What's what's the what's the yeah. terminology? Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's a duology. Uh, yeah. I, I think any any books uh, that are related to it will be sort of a spinoff series um, and a spiritual successor, but. But yeah, the the story that started with uh, 
Quinn trying to get this magic stone for uh, uh, Emma, the alchemist, um, is over. I think yeah. it's funny, too. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, Aaron, if you're noticing this, but I hate using the word magic. And that's one of the things, I guess that's one of the rules of this world is like, uh, they don't call it magic. It's metaphysical energy. Magic is kind of a derogatory term in this world. Um, so I'm Aaron kind of makes fun of me about it, where you're talking about meta and metaphysical energy. But uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I talk about it. I talk about it a lot in the book. Don't call it magic. I got well, it. it's one of the things that distinct like, would distinguish it from, I guess, novels that some might compare it to, right? Like it's yeah. uh, and and it brings more of uh, I, I guess uh, I mean don't get me wrong the shit in the book is still supernatural but it br- it brings it down to a more real world sort of uh, scientifically connected uh, yeah um, uh, world you know mm-hmm. yeah that's a great way to put it um, and that was something that was really important to me in in creating that concept because the I the idea of magic exists in this world but it's it's parlor tricks it's stage magicians it's sleight of hand it's close-up magic what mages can do, what alchemists can do, what maguses can do is something more intrinsic, something that's happening on a different level. And and there's a little bit of offense taken when people compare it to, you know, sawing the lady in half. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's another thing that I, I just tried to think of, like, if magic really existed in the world, how would, how would it happen? Because to put it in a real world example, no one could have predicted that in a world where, uh, a pandemic broke out that we would be begging people to wear masks or begging people to do the bare minimum uh, to, to try to stop a virus. Um, But I tried to think about that a little bit. Like if, if there was this world where magic existed, meta existed, what would other people think about it? What would people that couldn't tap into this metaphysical energy flow, what would they think of, of it? And, and that sort of grounded everything, every scene. And it actually helped create a lot of scenes because there's a lot of tension uh, in a world where some people can do something and some people can't. There's a lot of unfairness. There's a lot of hard feelings. And I think that's where like the, the realist part of this fantasy novel comes into play. You just went yeah. full Stanley X-Men. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, frankly, real world, real life on this right Right. Here. Right. And I didn't want to, what I guess, what is, if I can defend my novel for a second, what's unique about my take on it um, is that mages are like the mutants in, in the X-Men world. And, and they are like wizards in Harry Potter, but, but they're not the underdog. They have their own uh, level of privilege that they're uh, working within. And I think that was something I wanted to bring forth in the sequel, um, especially just in the the change in times, who am I, uh, white guy in my thirties? Uh, that what who, what is my voice? And I think that's one of the things that's great about this book is that Quinn has never really thought of himself as this big prominent mage. He's living in a world where where that's true, but he's never really thought of himself as as uh, more powerful than anyone else, mage or not. And I think that's a really interesting voice in a world where we basically gods walk amongst us that's a very poignant way of way of putting it now to suck all the wind out of that and go from poignant to outright silly uh let's uh let's let's uh to close out here let's kind of talk about the pun game a little bit and maybe that (laughs) that will transition into a little bit of uh maybe a little bit of a project that we uh might be doing later in in the fall but 
where where did the the title a war for the mages come from and maybe talk about some of the other titles that it <laughs> alternative titles yes. yeah yeah uh you know i struggled for so long to think of a good a play on words as coming of mage and the truth is there isn't it's the best it's nothing's gonna top <laughs> really nothing's gonna awesome. top coming of mage uh it was it was a piece of genius that I didn't even know I had in me, but I needed to come up with something. And I, and I think when I finally got over the barrier of, I don't need this to be as clever and as cutesy as coming of mage, a war for the mages came out and there's a lot of meaning. There's a lot of depth. There's three metaphors for war in this book that you'd be, that will take on a whole new meeting uh, with every, every part, every chapter. So, yeah, I mean, uh, a war for the mages was, and there's also a little bit of, it was the one title that people haven't thrown at me over the years. I think that's the Ah. toughest thing. People love to like guess endings and, and come up with new ideas for sequels and titles. But at the end of the day, you're just taking that out of the hands of the writer. When you come up with a title, I can't use it. (laughs) that's that's the simple game so this was the this was the one left that hadn't been thrown out on twitter (laughs) (laughs) and there's been some great ones uh uh mage against the machine i i love that one (laughs) Uh, (laughs) there's so many good ones um at one point i considered calling it like mage before beauty uh there's been lots of like weird catchphrases that come out one of the ones that never got through i wanted to call it minimum mage a play on minimum wage but i just didn't think that would that would stick but 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 there's such there's such this theme of like the characters in the book just like they can't get like a job that makes them any sort of money like that seemed like such a perfect title <laughs> the the uh clerks of the mage world basically totally totally <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome Two Mage, Two Furious uh, was a very real, and it is the hashtag uh, for the the book. I, I've I've hashtagged talking about it on Twitter as Two Mage, Two Furious for so long. That was the working title of it. Even in the even in the print copy, it said that up at the top. Like for real? Are you serious? Yeah, oh, for a long time. Yeah, that I was did the not title. know that. I yeah, I thought yeah. that was just Twitter jokes we were making. No, no. Oh my I, gosh! If you go so back funny. to the, if you look at the hash created by Two Mage Two yeah. Furious, uh, you will you will find it a long long time ago. That's hilarious. That that yeah. that kind of makes my day actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, this has been an absolute blast. We've we've talked all up and down the coming of mage saga. We've talked about a lot of cool stuff, but um Aaron, you you do a podcast. Yes, uh I have Tell a me about it. <laughs> uh the Autopod Decepticast is your bi-weekly podcast that uh, delivers an episode by episode breakdown of the original G1 Transformers series. It's me, two bros hanging out. Furious, we watch huh? the episode, we provide some commentary and analysis, and occasionally we bring on some other chuckleheads to um, talk about it with us. Uh, so, yeah, it's been uh, God. I, maybe close to four years now. I don't know how long we've been doing this thing. We started with Transformers the movie. We covered that minute by minute, meaning every minute of the movie was translated into about 
30 minutes of content <laughs> for our podcast and have since, yeah, now we're covering the show. So that's the main thing, I guess, to plug. And I guess uh, relative to the topic of today, if you were to go to AaronThweet.com is my semi-outdated illustration portfolio, but I need to add Coming of Mage to that, uh, yes, to that please. website because I am very proud of, of that work. So AaronThweet.com or autopoddecepticast.com or at apoddecast on all your favorite social media platforms. So uh, Michael Andrews, my uh, my best good friend, um, if uh, if folks wanted to purchase the Coming of Mage saga, the duology, uh, uh, Coming of Mage and A War for the Mages, uh, where can they find that on the internet? And where can we connect with you out on the social medias if we want to um, if we want to engage in those conversations that you keep threatening us with, threatening <laughs> us with that good time? Yes, please. No, uh, it is an Amazon exclusive. These books you can get it in ebook format or print copy, as we've talked about. Um, I have links on my. My uh, Twitter handle, uh, it's pretty easy to get to. But yeah, that again is at Michael Andrews. Uh, go to it there if you want a really easy link. Uh, another cool thing that Amazon does is they have sort of a series page that sort of like links everything together. So it actually tells you like the proper reading order of the books. It lists them that way. It tells you if it's a main book in the series or a spinoff series. So it's very cool and very intuitive. But yeah, please go there to check it out. Search for Coming of Mage or A War for the Mages and uh, you will find them. You might have to dig through some smut but you'll get there <laughs> <laughs> that's uh that's the copy of my next upcoming novel uh digging for <laughs> smut very good and uh i i guess before we get out of here and part ways for now do we want to tease an upcoming collaborative project that that we may or may not be doing this fall yes i think we should Oh, very good. Well, in partly inspired by our friends at the Autopod Decepticast, you know, that as Aaron was telling us, they do an episode by episode breakdown of the G1 series. There are other Transformers series out there, some older, some newer. But there was a I in my time in the fandom, I have been hard sold on several Transformers series that I have not visited. But the one that I have been hard sold more times than any is Transformers Animated. And from what I've been told, it's really good. And I really really missed out and i came up with uh kind of actually in the throes of the pandemic kind of thought about a way to remedy that and also get some good content and so i reached out to my best good buddy michael andrews and i'm like hey buddy how would you feel about doing a transformers animated recap podcast so that's, and I uh, said, I don't get out of bed for less than $5,000 an episode. So it goes through yourself. But then we came back around to it. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. So there, there, there are still things in flux, like, uh, you know, like in terms of like launch date and time, because really as uh, so we, we did a, we did a call. We, we did one of those. I, I love all your terms, Aaron, by the way, it's like, we had a brief and it's like, I'm going to start using that in my, in my vocabulary. So, you know, we, we chatted for a while and it's like, well, you know, I've, I've, I've got a book to write, 
Um, I need to, <laughs> I need to finish my book, but once the book is done, let's, uh, let's blow the dust off that and revisit. And you know what? I am holding in my hand a hard copy of a war for the mages book is done. Now yep. it's time to cast some pods. You so. have physical evidence that I can't blow you off anymore. We are doing <laughs> exactly. this project. <laughs> exactly. So coming soon, be uh, be on the lookout for uh, more announcements about our upcoming Transformers animated project. And you talked about working titles. And um, <laughs> I'm, just, I, I, I'm trying to say this with a straight face, and I don't think so. So as as uh, Two Mage, Two Furious was indeed the working title of A War for the Mages, we are operating under the working title of Two Mikes, Two Furious for our Transformers <laughs> animated recap of project. Of course you are. <laughs> you see, and that's, that is exactly the the response I was looking for from my other best good friend, Aaron, over there. So so if you have other suggestions for titles for this project, uh, hit me up on social medias. I am at Mike Seibert Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can send me an email like an old person at MikeSeibertRadio <laughs> at gmail.com. And the spelling on that is S-E-I-B-E-R-T. But yeah, no, I think now that we've set it out in the world, I think we actually have to do it. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think that needs to happen. I'm I'm very excited to learn from all of uh, Autopod Decepticast's mistakes and to uh, sort of improve upon their show. So Hey, make your own mistakes. I'm not giving you mine for free. <laughs> no, we are standing on your shoulders, Giants. I am out is. there. <laughs> there it is. There it is. So um, yeah. So Oh, hey, Mike, I would... Th- forgot in the spirit of uh promotion to talk about the fact that you and greg are on the most current episode um where we talk about the auto bop yes the titular auto bop <laughs> aka blaster v Soundwave dawn of justice it's uh <laughs> the actual fight is very underwhelming but the conversation is great we kind of really get into why fans gravitate towards Soundwave more so than blaster uh kind of in the in the wake of that of that j blavatron uh yellow Soundwave network app thing that i'm not buying uh but uh the there there are are also uh some uh, unfunny nerd tangents within that uh that discussion as well we kind of we kind of plenty of he-man legislation i was gonna say that i'm excited to see how that goes there's there's a cloud of uh the the masters of the universe uh, revelation legislation there were some really white hot kevin smith takes because like emphasis on white <laughs> God damn it. I'm leaving all that in. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, and that will wrap things up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening and for hanging out with us. Um, if you want to listen to all of my past shows, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever the heck else you listen to your podcast. And you could check out the full show archive out on SoundCloud. Five years and over 300 episodes worth of shows out there and join us at some point for the mike cyber radio podcast live stream that is going to be streaming on twitter youtube twitch and facebook live like share rate and review the show let us know what you'd like and what you'd like to see more of in the future for my guests michael andrews and aaron thweet my name is mike this has been mike cyber radio and until next time tell all our one make good choices You've been listening to the Mike Seibert Radio Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching at Mike Seibert Radio. 
Email us at MikeCybertRadio at gmail.com. The spelling on that, of course, is S-E-I-B-E-R-T. Call into the voicemail hotline at 231-224-MIKE. Once again, that's 231-224-6453. Special thanks to Michael Geisler for our theme music. For more like it, check out ByDoorMusic.com. This has been a Mike Seibert Radio Production.